Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me tonight is returning guest, Gamers with Jobs, Eric Hansen. Eric, thanks for being on the show tonight. I have coffee, but I'm not sharing. Oh, <laughs> see, you are no Tom Chick, sir. No, no, I can't claim that. And it's fitting that Eric returns today, because the last time he was on the show was when we were talking about the Civil War, and today we pick up, in some ways, almost where we left off. Tonight's topic is Paradox France's new strategy game, Pride of Nations, uh, a game of 19th century imperialism. Designer Philip Thibault was good enough to join us for tonight's show. Philip, thanks for uh, coming on. Thank you. I'm I'm pleased to be with you. Uh, Just at dinner, so I'm not missing anything, coffee or anything else. (laughs) Excellent. Philip, before before we get into the game itself, I'm, I'm interested to hear how you came to make a game about... Uh, colonial conquest in the 19th century. Uh, what what brought that to your mind when you were considering what your next game would be? Yeah, well, it's a rather long process because I would say if I take everything into account, the, the idea matured in my mind almost 10 years ago. Um, I used to be a, a fanatic board gamer playing every weekend, and I was in love with a game called Pax Britannica, which I played a lot. And uh, with friends in France, about 10 years ago, we designed a, a, a more elaborate board game on the subject. But at the time, the market for a sub for board game in France was just going to die, and I shelved the idea. And about five years ago, when we decided what would be the next big project for our company, HRT, we decided that the uh, 19th century, because there's so many things interesting in it, uh, would be a very good subject. And the luck was that I had already a large uh, set of uh, documents and designs that we could use. Are you saying that the the game itself was uh, five years in the making? Yes, that's right. Uh, The thing is that our team is very small. We are two uh, people here in France and a few freelancers and, of course, beta testers to help us. But during the last five years, I would say... Uh, the first four of them, we were very busy with other products in our line, and you, you probably heard about our game like American Civil War, uh, which was released in 2007. So we were, in fact, developing our games in parallel. Uh, the fact is that the, the age of games uh, all use the same engine. So whatever we were developing for a product was used as basis of the engine for the other games. It's more or less like a, a Lego game where you, you have a set of bricks, and the more bricks you have, the better and the nicer thing you can do. Uh, but they all use the same material at the start. With Ajod's designs, you have, you've touched on many different eras, many different conflicts, and you know, this, is, this is clearly a departure in some ways, but is also in keeping with uh, the theme of your previous games. But I have to ask, are you a passionate history buff? Uh, is this, are these conflicts objects of fascination for you, or do you look at them more just as purely opportunities for new gameplay, new scenarios? No, I would say the former. I'm, I'm really a, a, a passionate with the history. Uh, I've been like this since uh, I was a little kid, so uh, uh, everything related to history is uh, of interest to me. Um, the fact is... Um, our games with Azure are more concentrated on the modern and uh, recent eras. That is, our, we started with the American Independent War, and we move forward in time. We have not tackled yet, at least in this company, the ancient or medieval teams, which I did before in different companies. Anyway, 
uh, that's one part. And the second part is that uh, Pride of Nation, it's, it's a, a big step forward compared to the other games, because uh, it's the first one where we tackle the grand strategic uh, level. Uh, our previous game were strategic games, but I would say more uh, on a more operational scale. I mean, even if, if you take the civil war, which is a huge conflict, it's still limited in some ways compared to a, a game of the scope of Pride of Nation, which is covering the whole world. So there, there's been a trend as as Age Out brings new games out, where I would say that Birth of America was very was very purely operational, where units would come on the map and you would move them around, but you had very few high level decisions to to deal with. And I was struck in Rise of Prussia how much things had changed, with uh, much more emphasis on uh, strategic level decisions, uh, raising troops. Uh, looking after war material. Were you consciously building toward this design? Yes and no at the same time, I would say. We, we felt that the players were requesting more uh, high-level involvement in the conflict, and which was something which we felt also of interest. Uh, so that was a, a conscious decision to, to bring more high-level decision. Another point which goes on the other way, which was like when you select a conflict, our philosophy is to to put the player in the shoes of the uh, top commanders. And if you take the uh, birth of America, where as English, you are responsible of the forces in North America, you didn't have much to say of the overall strategy of Great Britain at the time. So you, it was logical that you concentrate on operational matters in, in North America with the means of the time, so lack of control and so on. And in Rise of Prussia, well, you're supposed to be Frederick the Great, and your real challenge is not to win so much battles, which you do, but to how to face so many enemies on different fronts and organize a country to just survive the war. So I would say that's right. We are moving a step forward uh, every time in higher degrees of uh, strategical decision. And Pride of Nation is probably the uh, highest accomplishment because here you manage also economy, diplomacy, and, and colonial things, and a lot of uh, other different aspects. Um, so I would say our first motto is to adapt to these subjects we are dealing with. Try to put the player in what we feel would be the most uh, interesting position for the time, uh, usually the war leader. Um, of course, if tomorrow we do a, a, a more operational game on a smaller conflict, then we'll probably have no such need of high-level decisions. So let's just, let's get into Pride of Nations itself now. You know, I think we, we talked a bit about this during the, uh, the Paradox Convention in New York at the start of this year. Um, yeah. There was another Victorian-era strategy game coming out of Paradox uh, fairly recently, and that was Victoria 2. Uh, and, and so, in, in your own words, could you, could you sort of draw the distinction, you know, beside, but aside from the, the clear gameplay differences uh, between the two games, where one is a real-time strategy game in, in the mode of uh, Europe Universalis 3, and yours is a turn-based WeGo uh, strategy game, uh, how, do the, how do the two games differ in how they treat the Victorian era? First, first of all, I would like to say that the, uh, there was no conscious decision uh, to develop two games on the same subject at the same time. In fact, it happened that 
Paradox was upgrading its uh, original Victoria game for some time, and that's why Victoria 2 was released, and it's, it's an excellent game. At the same time, Egeod, um, which was not yet Paradox France, had this project on the 19th century ongoing. And so when the two companies merged, um, well, we ended up with two games, one just released, Victoria 2, and our almost to be released, which already had invested a lot. So it would have been a waste just to dump uh, one of the games saying that, well, there's another game on the same subject. Luckily for us, I would say uh, gameplay and the, uh, the game philosophy was quite uh, different. Um, I would say um, Pride of Nation is much less, I would say, sandbox than Victoria. I mean, we give the player much less liberty uh, into doing what he would like to do. Uh, it's not so much of an open game. I mean, uh, what was our original aim in Pride of Nation was to say to the guy, look, you are sent back to uh, your ancestors 150 years ago. Now you are the prime minister of your country, run it. But run it the way they did it at the time. So we will not allow things that they, would, they were not allowing themselves at the time. And that's why uh, our set of rules, uh, of events, of, um, let's say, actions uh, allowed to the players are probably uh, more constrained um, than in Victoria 2. And so, for example, you can't switch a government like this. Uh, in Victoria 2, okay, it's possible. You just build up your strategy and do it. Well, in our game, if you play Russia, don't dream ever to become a democracy. You can't do that uh, unless a, a very painful and historical process. So I agree that for some players, it's a bit limited. But that was our design to do something that, well, guys, you will be in the in the historical, real historical field, and. Uh, your real goal is to do better or a bit different, but not that different from history. And there's still a lot of uh, funny things to do. So, Eric, uh, one of the reasons I wanted you on this show was because you're one of the few people I know who seems to have a real, a real affinity for uh, Victoria too. You, you, from what I, from what I gather, that game exerts something of a fascination upon you. Um, yes, I think part of that is that uh, it has. It's known to be this gigantic game about a uh, more overlooked part of history, uh, especially from an American perspective, because it does have the Civil War in it. But that's sort of the part that we tend to skip in our in our grade school history books too. Is you know Reconstruction through World War One. Oh, well, there was trust busting happened maybe, um, but there's a lot going on, and it's a very very deep game, like uh, most paradox games are. And so I, I think when I recommended it on Steam, I said this isn't a recommendation so much as a challenge uh, to you know, dig, you know, roll up your, your shirt sleeves and really dig into you know what it means to try to be uh, Prussia as it's it's forming, or even uh, one of the smaller nations. I usually start most of the paradox games as Sweden, just because it's a little bit isolated and doesn't have some of the broader uh, problems, but. And the, the amount of research that goes into uh, the various Paradox games and the new uh, Paradox France games, too. It's just great for me it, as a sandbox, but also as a sort of exploration of the history. I can say, oh, this is, you know, I can just load up uh, a year and just poke around at com 
countries and say, oh, that's who was ruling there. That's what was going on. That's what their political climate was like. That's what they were doing industry-wise or science-wise at the time. And it's just a fascinating way for me to explore the history in a lot of ways. Now that you've had a chance to play around a bit with uh, Pride of Nations, what differences in what di- what differences jump out at you, and particularly in matters of like historical representation? How, how do the two games, in your eyes, differ in how they portray uh, the way the Victorian period worked? It's interesting because they're both more historical in different ways. Things like the way that uh, Pride of Nations handles technology, I think, is interesting because it's less, it's more true to life in that it's not as directed as uh, the other paradox system tends to make technology. Right. Um, it sort of will happen on its own, but you can spend scads of money to try to make it happen faster. Um, whereas Vicky 2 has much more of the sandbox you feel, but it also has the sort of inevitable events that pop up uh, that are based on the historical record, and they'll mess with you too. Yeah, so the, the, the events are a little bit more pre-scripted in Vicky 2 um, in a way that is you know, historical, but it also doesn't necessarily feel as connected to what's going on in the game as uh, as it does in Pride of Nations, where it really is a, an issue. Like, you're fighting for coal rights in this territory, and all of a sudden you have a real issue here. Well, well right. I, I kind of feel, and, and perhaps this is by design, Philip, but what, I, what I've noticed is that Pride of Nations in some ways seems a little more open-ended. There, there are certain ways that Victoria is trying to force you onto historical tracks. But the interesting, what I find really interesting about uh, Pride of Nations is it seems to me that the missions that come along tend to bait you along the, the correct historical path. Uh, the, the, mission, the early missions I received as uh, the United States in my game uh, were very much pushing me to reaching the same sort of, you know, semi-great power status that the United States indeed achieved uh, in the years following the Civil War. Uh, were, were you trying to get, were you trying to convince players to role-play their nation? Yes, yes. In in some ways, that was my uh, intent. Of course, my fellow designer uh, Philip, uh, the other Philip, <laughs> disagreed, and so he balanced my uh, trends on, on that matter. But uh, it's true. The missions uh, they are some kind of reward. There is no penalty for failing, except that if the other guys succeed, in itself, it's a penalty for you. Uh, so they, they are very directive, and uh, it's true that, for example, for the USA, they will push you to invest in a large merchant navy and a, a large cotton industry. Uh, well, it's, uh, it, it's uh, in some ways, yes, it's very open-ended. That is, if you don't do it, well, you can do something else. It doesn't matter. But the whole system is conceived as a, as a big building where each, each action or each mission or everything plays its role. And it's true that if you try to follow the incentives the games give you through the missions or through events, well, you'll find yourself in a situation which will look like history, not, not always the same, but very close. And uh, that's where you will get the most rewards as a player because you will be faced with very original situations. And uh, in some ways, we are clearly inferior to, to Victoria. Let's, for example, if, if it regards uh, population management, we made it much more simpler. 
Uh, our government management and political issues are extremely limited. Um, well, they are, they are historical event driven. It's not so much of a player's decision except a few ones. But on the other hand, if, for example, you take the, um, the colonial race aspect, it's much more detailed and varied and ample in our game uh, and probably less constrained than in, um, in uh, Victoria 2. Um, so I would say, yes, it's a, it's a, real, a, dis a real design choice uh, to, to push, I would say, players on an uh, interesting way, because this way will give you nice results and a lot of fun. Yeah, if I had to make some broad generalizations about the difference between Pride of Nations and Victoria 2, uh, Victoria 2, like the other games in, of, on that engine, uh, tends to encourage you to expand and then keep expanding. Um, whereas Pride of Nations, you're, you're free to try to expand within your spheres of influence, but it's a very slow process and one that isn't necessarily as directly or quickly rewarding as you would like it to be. Well, it's also much more active, I would I would say as well, because yeah. there are the, um, so so we we should explain a bit some of the some of the interesting mechanics that that drive this game, and one of the ones I really enjoy is the the various sort of um, decisions you can take with regard to colonies. Whereas, you know, I I don't know, is it, is it fair to say that that Victoria that Victoria kind of operates on a I don't know. It's just a kind of a resource sink model where you, you keep feeding resources into uh, both diplomacy and to colonialism. You keep you keep feeding stuff in, and event and you accrue you accrue influence. You you accrue power elsewhere. Is that roughly how it works in, in Vicky? Would you say is that a fair description? Yeah, and it's it's um, in Vicky as well as in Europa. Um, it very much is a just poor money and resources at things and eventually it will turn you know from a seed into a plant um and whereas in in pride of nations it's it, you have this whole list of options of you know expeditions or military demonstrations um or building things or bribing local chieftains or whatever well, well to run with your seed and plant analogy i think it's very much like the difference between you know feeding a plant and running a garden because because well, there there's such a variety of things you can do in Pride of Nations to to gain influence over over colonies. Uh, so so you will have a menu of options that in the very early stages because uh, every everything is measured against colonial penetration. It's it's the degree of uh, the degree of control you've gained over a colonial territory. And in the very early stages, when you really have no presence there at all, you can gain colonial influence just by doing things like sending a you know a an expedition of naturalists into the w wilderness or you know send send a geog a geographical mission out there and then as you get more involved you begin adopting more high risk uh and and more managerial approaches to to these territories so you'll have you, you will be able to give orders like bribe local chieftains uh send in missionaries send in uh, you know punitive expeditions, and what what becomes very interesting is these all these all have slightly different effects, different risks, different rewards. Pride of Nations is much more interested, it seems to me, in the uh, carrot and stick of colonialism. That's true. Yeah, that we we try to focus on some things that we felt was 
uh, uh, spirit of the time. So we, we decided that they are, well, of course, the um, railroad expansion and this industrial revolution was one which was important. So the economy plays a big role in the game. Uh, the colonial race was also uh, an interesting aspect which we love to, to display. Nevertheless, um, we and you mentioned that earlier in, uh, in your presentation, um, we, we felt also that some countries should have uh, a possibility of a different gameplay. So when we selected the game and said, well, there will be the eight major power of the time playable to start with, maybe we'll explain later, but at least we start with eight big nations. We wanted that some nation had a, a very different gameplay and that the player could still have a chance of winning and enjoy. And it's true that if you play Prussia or Italy in the beginning, well, you, you are not at all concerned with colonial uh, things because you are, you are not even a big nation of Europe and your first aim will be different to, to unite your country and, uh, and uh, achieve this goal before even dreaming of civilizing uh, black Africa. So we should go back to the overarching goal of the game because and and again i think the the difference the, the difference between this and victoria is illuminating in this case so all so all paradox games tend to revolve around prestige they're they're kind of open ended in that way where you, if you win anything you kind of win the game of history in victoria it's 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 very much just about you know try you know first of all you you're, you very much are setting your own personal objectives uh you know the, those games are all very player driven but you're all you're also very you're acquiring prestige by you know being well governed by by looking inward by internal development and it seems to me that in, in pride of nations has perhaps a more cynical uh, uh view on history in that pride of nations seems very much driven just by the desire on the part of these imperialist nations to acquire tokens of power, whether or not it actually helps your country at all in any material sense, your goal is still to gain more colonies just for the sake of the prestige you gain from them. You will pick fights with other nations just for the sake of humbling them. It's, it's very... Yeah, it's it's very it's very competitive in that sense, where, where prestige is now is, is much more of a zero-sum game as opposed to uh, Victoria's more, um, you know, you, you can play however you like, and then you'll be judged at the end. If yeah. I could, I think part of that is that uh, Victoria 2 has a very, uh, because it's a, a sandbox, you sort of pick your own end goal. And you say, I want, you know, you can pick some small nation in the middle of Europe and say, I want to bring these guys to be a player, at least. I mean, maybe a secondary power, but, but um, not necessarily knocking off the UK. Uh, by the end of the game, but uh, Pride of Nations has a, a very explicit whoever has the most points at the end wins sort of model to it, and it says as much uh, when you start the game. So th there's there is that that idea of that I need to be moving up to the the charts, and I need to try to end as number one. Yeah, that's true. In fact, uh, what you said about being cynical is is quite right. Uh, the, the, for every nation, there is a goal which is set at the start and which says, well, you guys, you must have the most precious points and maybe twice as many as the other guys. So everything that happens in the game, uh, bad or good, will uh, give you uh, a, a hand benefit in, in, in terms of prestige. And it might be interesting sometimes to, to pick up a losing war or to go after a, a desolate colony just because it's bringing you more prestige. 
Uh, and that's what we, we aim at. That is, uh, we felt that sometimes uh, it would represent better history in our minds uh, to, to give stupid goals. Uh, let's uh, take an example, an historical example, for a quick one. Uh, if you look at the way Italy approached the colonial adventure, the guys entered the race very late and they were left with a few crumbs uh, on the table. So they, they did their best and they did sometimes stupid things. Uh, but in the end, that brought um, uh, prestige and kind of great power status that they would maybe not deserve at some points. So um, it it's, it's true that we will push players to follow things um, that might be not in their best interest if they were playing in Victoria 2, for example. Uh, a, a last note I would like to add is that um, we, we try to avoid uh, um, a very common phenomenon we find in ground strategy game, which is usually at the middle part of the game, the player is doing so well and so nice that he has already won and he usually quit. Um, we wanted the challenge to remain until the end, so the, the race will be never really over. And there might even be a risk that we, we design a mechanism that at some point in the game, in the late game, especially if the prestige levels are quite equivalent or not too far away between uh, countries, uh, there might be a mechanism where, uh, like uh, what we call a Great War uh, happens, and then the end goals are completely sh changed. That is, it's no longer the guy with most prestige who wins. It's the guy who wins the Great War, whatever his score is. And so that makes um, a kind of paranoid style of play in the end terms, which was more or less what you could feel in Europe or in the world in the early 20th century. People were rich, successful, they had everything, all the nation were great powers, and they threw everything out of the window in the Great War. Well, and and could you even apply that directly to Germany? Where if, like, say you you were playing Germany, and I pl I I did just as well as Bismarck did, where I had clearly kind of won European history by midway through the game, and then the rules somehow change, and I find myself playing a much more dangerous game. Where now I've won all the peaceful goals, or the, well, I mean, moderately peaceful. This is uh, Prussia and Germany we're talking about, but I, I've achieved all those goals, and now sort of hubris takes us right over the cliff. Yeah, true. And uh, we felt it's funny, <laughs> you know. Uh, if you take history, for example, the, the, the guy, Bismarck, did his best to maintain balance of power all over Europe. And suddenly, one day, he, he, he got himself into a fight with the Kaiser and was uh, get rid of. And so suddenly, German diplomacy be, became, I would say, weird and looking for opportunities of uh, excessive opportunities of prestige. And it's probably considered by many historians that one of the causes of the First World War, like things like uh, an unusually strong and unnecessary need for uh, more prestige, whereas if that stayed in peace, it would probably have won, I would say, you know, in, in real life as well as in the game. They have well, all the well, assets and they, they just gamble everything away. Well, well, there's that, that, that famous Bismarck quote. I, th I think it's Bismarck. Uh, my map of Europe is in Africa. Or, my, no, my map of Africa is in Europe, right? Yeah. Where he explicitly is saying that to him, the, the, the entire colonial game is just that. It's a game. And he's happy to use it as a distraction while he achieves tangible results 
in Europe, things that will actually help Germany. And it's a bargaining tool, but right. And, and the problem is, Bismarck's success in some ways leads to someone like Kaiser Wilhelm II, who actually believes that this international prestige is the is the point of the game. He actually buys into sort of the propaganda. Yeah, that's often always. It's very frequent with propaganda. The one who is uh, issuing it ends up believing in it. Just, just to clarify about sort of these these mid-game uh, shifts, does because I th- I have not I have not played so successfully or so much that this has happened to me. Uh, I'm sad to say, but so does there have to be a war ongoing that will be cu- that and then you will be issued a great war goal, or can it just sort of happen where now you are compelled to try and find a great war to win? Yeah, well, the great wars. Uh... It's a kind of, um, let's say, the information pops up for the player as an event, which says, hey, guys, now it's Great War. What is Great War? It's a war where at least five European powers are involved, including three of the major ones. So it can be quite open. It's maybe not the one we knew. could be another one. Uh, but at least, um, you know, for example, a Great War could open in uh, at the time of the Crimea War if, for example, Prussia and uh, Austria joined the fray against Russia, then you end up with five big powers in Europe fighting each other, and it's kind of a world war. Um, so, but usually we tr- we manage a lot of triggers that it would happen after the middle part or middle section of the game. So the player will know that the rules have changed. We will tell them, look, guys, now there are so many so many nations involved. It's a big conflict. And we will assign the players new objectives that they have to fill. And uh, if they fulfill this objective by the time that everybody is at peace again, or the game has reached its end, well, they have won. Now, I, I did find there, there is an interesting remark in the tutorial regarding the profitability of colonies. And I just wanted to, you to, because I, I, haven't, I haven't run through the math on this, so, so to what degree are colonies contributing to your uh, stock of private capital and government wealth? Uh, are, are, do they tend to run a profit, or are they resource <laughs> sinks in exchange for prestige? Yeah, well, in fact, uh, the game ac- quite accurately models the historical uh, situation and analysis which is shared by most historians today. In fact, in our game, uh, colonies is a, a huge loss of money for the state. So the state money runs out of the window uh, through maintenance of uh, troops, of colonial building and administration, and a lot of things like this. So the bigger your empire, the more money you lose as a state. And that's what happened. Most nations, including Britain, lost money, state money, on colonies. But, and that's a big but, uh, is the, a lot of people private people, private companies, uh, became immensely rich from day one in the colonies. They made huge profits. And that's what our game does also. That is, your private investment in the colony in terms of uh, new uh, economic structures, merchants, trade, access to new resources, is bringing a lot of extra benefits. Plus the fact that also when you have colonies, you just increase tremendously the size of your market. So giving you more profit for your private industries. And we end up in a game where 
So taxpayers' money is is just wasted on colonies uh, where it could be used differently. But on the on the other end, the wealth of your country is increasing tremendously for your private people and the business. And uh, that's what happened in most Western countries uh, at, at this era. If I check the French companies, for example, today, most of our big groups are uh, groups that were created on colonial ventures, and they have been immensely profitable for years, where uh, everybody considered that the, state, the French state got ruined by its own colonies. So it's a bit paranoid situation. <laughs> <laughs> It's also a bit more of a, a French viewpoint, isn't it? Because the, yeah, true, at true. least for a long time, it was uh, the the English were very much uh, upset that uh, Churchill had hacked apart their their empire uh, just to fight some silly war with the Germans. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, this is, I would say, probably uh, uh, our own view of the world. Um, the fact also that uh, it's our own mistake in that because the French approach to colonization was. They were trying to justify themselves for what they were doing, and so they, they claimed uh, that they were civilizing the, the, the natives, and that was their motto. We don't go there for profit. No, 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 no. We go there to, to save these poor bastards. And the British have a more uh, realistic approach. They knew where they were going and what for. And the, the French have always been very ambivalent with that. And in the end, and it's, it's almost similar to what I said about, uh, let's say, propaganda. In the end, they believed in their own, own lies. They, they were convinced that they were going to Africa to, uh, to bring the light to the savages. You know, the white man burden and all this stuff. But we really believed in it. And uh, we, we ended up sending a lot of civil servants there, a lot of troops. We, we built roads and a lot of investment which were not really profitable at the cost of the French taxpayers. And the guy who made money of that were French businessmen, private ones. Hmm. In the British Empire, what's about the same, but they, they don't make so much a fuss about that. <laughs> yeah, the, the British had the, the rhetoric about how they were helping, but at the yeah. same time, it was very clear that it was about, also about glory and about um, you know, the money flowing from London and back into London. Exactly. And you know, if you consider what happened in India in 1947, one of the reasons, uh, not always put on the forefront, but of the, the, the British leaving the rush to the Indian, was that, well, it was no longer profitable. One of, one of the things that, you know, it certainly sort of jumps out at me, the, the map of the colonies and pride of nations, is to an extent when the game begins, it, it's almost like it begins at the end of another game that England has already won. That <laughs> as, you, as you survey your territories, uh, Britain, Britain already begins with a lot of resource-rich colonies that it, it makes sense that you would want those. There are, there are a lot of places where you can, you can clearly exploit them. There are, there's a clear purpose for, for gaining control the, over these raw materials. And then there's much more marginal territory available elsewhere for, for the other great powers. That's true. And... Um... In fact, it's also a game mechanism to prevent what I've seen in, in ball games on a similar period, like Britain rushing to, to, to take the nice colonies out of uh, reach of the other guys before they can even wake up about that. So w the British has a huge empire with a lot of things to do inside it. So I would say Britain will not be tempted to race for colonies, or let's say for more colonies that she already has. 
because there's so much to do in the British Empire. Um, the, the only reason why they would invest more into colonies would be, and that's what happened historically, to, to avoid that the other guys get too big too. Um, so the, the, I, I wanted to avoid the situation where, let's say, for example, Germany or Italy would come up uh, on the game, let's say, in the, in the middle uh, 70s and say, well, there's no much room left for us. The British and French have taken everything already. Um, so they start big, but they have a lot to do inside their own territory. And the second aspect is that the, um, let's say, the scores that they need to maintain their, um, their leadership is much higher. That is, for example, Britain must be first, but first and at the same time as uh, twice as many prestige than the other guys. So it means that they start big, but they have to be even bigger at the end. So it's, it's still a challenge. Right, and this is very much in keeping with the way other Paradox games also great historical per performance on a curve, right? Where it's no great trick to create a European empire with France if you're starting in the high Middle Ages. You know, it, it, you, know you, you start with many advantages. Uh, but it is perhaps, it is, it, it, is, is, it is a much greater feat to somehow take a tiny European statelet and turn it into a proper you know, a proper independent kingdom. So it, yeah. it, it just seems that, it, yeah, this is yet another game where, because I, I was curious how, I, I was curious how it would be if I, if I chose to play England. I, I admit, I was, I, I shied away from England when I first started playing um, Pride of Nations because the administrative responsibilities were terrifying. Huge. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's a, it's a daunting tax. It's probably the hardest country to play because there are so many things to watch, to keep an eye on. And uh, in proportion of the, let's say, the surface of the globe that British, the British Empire is covering, uh, I would say events and crises and things that will happen will concern you half of the time. So you'll probably be on watch all, all, all the time. But of course, you also have much more uh, assets than the other guys. I would say at some point, the, probably the easiest nation to play is the USA. Uh, because uh, a lot of things are to do, but also, uh, let's say, a safe roof, a room for expansion. And uh, if, you, if you do it well, it's okay. I mean, you have only one challenge, is how painful will be the civil war. Mm -hmm. Right, so, so how, do you, how do you handle the civil war? Because uh, I, I, have, I have yet to get to it. Eric, have you, have you uh, managed to get the South to secede? I was just shy of it when I realized I had to stop playing because we needed to podcast. <laughs> oh darn! Well, we could have delayed. Uh, so, so I'm always interested to hear how how games handle the outbreak of the civil war when they, when they are not specifically a civil war game, right? This is a this is a historical simulator in some ways. So, how does the how does the run up to something like the civil war work in Pride of Nations? Well, yeah. Um... I would say, um, to, to start with, there is a little, I just say a little chance that the civil war never occurs, but it's extremely rare in the game. Yeah, in my own test, it happens only once. Uh, how we do that is that from the start of the game, which is 1850, we have regular events, historical events, uh, sometimes Chrome events that will happen to the US player. And these events uh, will bring uh, up uh, what we call uh, a civil war uh, tension index. 
um, which starts at zero and will ra rise up to, uh, to 20 sometimes. Um, so you have uh, trouble in Kansas, you have uh, the, the Great Compromise, you have uh, Uncleton's Cabin, these kind of things. They happen at regular intervals. Uh, in some of them, the player has the choice either to behave like historically or to do something else. Um, depending on his choice and the, a small part of randomness, the index will rise. Uh, when the index reaches, uh, and it's usually after uh, a few five to seven years minimum, but sometime longer, uh, when it reaches at least 12 points, there is a small chance that the civil war uh, occur on a stupid incident. And of course, this chance increase. The more the index rises, the, the more the chance increase. Um, so you usually end up sometimes around this 1860 with an explosive situation in the US because not only the index has risen, but also their uh, discontent within the uh, US population between the two main groups, which we we summarized. We are not we have not so many distinctions as in uh, Victoria, but uh, we have let's say Yankees and Dixies. And uh, when the tension uh, rises so much and the groups start to feel very different from each other, then um, the chance for civil war is big. When it happens, it's uh, it's quite simple, I would say. The South makes a secession, it gets its own economy and army, and the US player is uh, informed about this situation, of course, he can see it, and his goals are completely thrown away. I mean, whatever he was doing before is just cancelled, and we tell him, okay, guy, now you have that much time, which is usually maximum five years, to uh, regain the full control of the USA. If he manages to do that, which is our aim, um, well, he will, I would say the war, if, if led successfully, will make him uh, in a position where he can recover all the points he has lost when the civil war uh, uh, occurred. Because when the civil war happened, the US player lose like something like 2,000 prestige points, which is a lot. So. What happened? We say if, for example, the U.S. player failed to win within time. Well, we consider that some kind of truce or uh, exhaustion situation occur with the U.S. and CSA, and they sign some kind of formal white peace. The U.S. player, of course, now can breathe a little, is at peace, and he has lost his 2,000 points. And we consider also, because we didn't want, and this is a design decision, that the uh, the southern state could remain in the game forever. Uh, we decide that after four or five years of this peace, that is a piece of defeat for the USA, then um, some kind of political compromise will be found and the reunion will be reinstated so that the US player will still have a nice nation to play. The only bad thing for him is that because he has lost the war, he has lost a lot of prestige that would take a huge talent to recover in front of the other guys. So I would say a U.S. player who lose the Civil War has probably almost no chance to win the game anyway. But maybe you will have a lot of fun. So the, the game uh, is designed in a way to push for the historical result for the, um, for the U.S. victory. Uh, one of the things we discussed uh, when we were talking about Civil War games in general, uh, the last time I was on this podcast, uh, was how in something like Vicky 2 the american player can 
know that the Civil War is coming and plan for that by not raising any troops from the South or uh, intentionally keeping the South as weak as possible while doing more and more to build up the northern states. Um, how much, how effective, because like I said, I hadn't gotten quite to the Civil War. How effective is that when the Civil War happens? Do you have certain tr troops that will necessarily split off to the South or do you have key? Yes, yeah, well, we, we, we had a lot of talks, especially with the American beta team on the, on the subject. And so our design decision was, uh, well, the first thing is that uh, this is a huge difference with uh, Victoria. Uh, in Pride of Nation, you have four pools. I mean, you can't build huge armies. So whatever the, the USA uh, will do, they will never have uh, three or four corps army at the start of a potential civil war. They will have usually the traditional US army, maybe a slightly bigger. Anyway, at the start of the civil war, uh, we have uh, a, a series of events that occur that uh, first um, creates new uh, interesting uh, general officers for both sides. I mean, the American, the North, the North force pool of generals is increased by 10 times. The South has the historical nice general that uh, Robert Lee and the other guys. Uh, the South gets also a very nice army of good qualities that is even, even if totally empty. And that's what happened. I mean, we consider that it mobilizes in some ways its reserves and militias and get it into this, uh, a nice army. The North, even if without any army, we get the 90 days volunteers in huge numbers. Um, and uh, globally, I would say both sides will have, uh, even, even if in trade, a, a, a quite large army to fight the war with. Uh, and then it's up to the players and the AI for the CSA to, to build up more troops and fight the war. So that's part on the military field. So there's no trick like uh, trying to uh, build a huge army or because it's not possible. Or on the contrary, no army in the South, because if you do that, well, the South will get an army anyway and you will get nothing. So uh, better you, you, you keep an historical pass on that. On the economic field, uh, of course, the, the, the U.S. player will try to concentrate on developing the northern states, and that's purely logical because anyway, it's where the interesting resources are the south. And that's one of the big reasons why you have the, the cotton mission, for example. The cotton doesn't grow in the north, and so if you don't develop a minimum the southern part of the country, you lose the FT point bonus of the cotton mission anyway. And as a safeguard, because some beta players told us like they would deliberately stripping the south of any infrastructure we have decided that um, and of course if people know that they will exploit it but we have decided that the south will get for example a decent uh, railroad network so that the army and uh, initial industry is sufficiently well structured that they could fight a, a good war of course a u.s player who knows the trick will probably do uh, something like, well, don't develop the South, it will be done automatically by the by the Southern in case of a war. And some of our beta testers did the trick. But at some point, we, we, we don't know how to, let's say, safeguard ourselves for, for all the possible exploits. There are too, just too many. So we decided that we will let the, the, uh, the Northern player, or let's say the US player, follow a strategy which is, okay, let's do my best try to do the best what I do for my country, I will not shoot myself in the foot because, for example, if I don't develop at all the southern industries and the cotton uh, 
fields and the, the railroad in the south, I may end up losing points on my mission. And if ever, by a little chance, there is no civil war, I will, I will be late and I will have lost huge opportunities. So he, at some point, there is some, um, some decision, which is, okay, I, I cannot strip the south of everything anyway, because it's not in a, uh, my best interest. Because in the worst case, if the war is tough, and uh, even if you lose it, it's as worse 10 years without it. And then at some point, you will recover it anyway. So it's not uh, in your best interest to, to make the south a wasteland. So there's both the, the missions that uh, offer an incentive to develop the south, and there's the, the lack of incentive to intentionally harm the south just in case the civil war happens. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Uh, it, it was tried after after a few a few game tests. We we found out that usually it was a good strategy, and usually the the the, the civil war occur more or less within the uh, the same time frame, within a, maybe sometimes one year or two years different. But it's not huge, and globally it's a good fight and uh, a lot of action for the U.S. player uh, and a real challenge. But um, it might, we we try to to let the play, U.S. player understand that uh, he does not have to play the first ten years of the game in the expectation of this big conflict. He has to play the first ten years like, well, he's not really aware something will happen. Of course, he knows we cannot prevent the insight, but uh, he has to do his best to do the best if the country was not concerned with the situation, and then try to react. And once again, it's like we want the people to be in the spirit of the time, that they, they had no idea what was going to happen in a few years. They had suspicions. They could have doubts. They could have, uh, you know, um, fears about what would happen, but they could not know exactly. And we try as best as we can to, to have the players behave like this, and we give them a lot of incentive to do so. Well, and I, and I, I think you did do a, a great job there because the the U.S. missions do encourage you to play for to play to play 1855 like you actually care about what happens in 1855 and not 1860. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I, I think another, uh, you know, I mean, for one thing, you got the the Navy mission, which you know is is an expensive that is an expensive undertaking to uh, maintain. You know, to to construct and maintain two rather large uh, military and merchant fleets, uh, you know, er, fairly early in the game, and that's going to require, you know, that's going to require a lot of money, and a lot of that money is going to come from selling raw materials raised in the South. the the other The other thing is, Pride of Nations seems very seems to really emphasize the importance of building networks of infrastructure. Uh, where it's it's very much it's very much not about developing provinces in isolation and creating you know wealthy developed territories. It's it's all about linking the economic hubs of your country together, so that all the materials you're raising are making their way efficiently toward manufactories where they can be spun out into higher value goods. It's it's very it's very difficult to it's it's very difficult to avoid getting pulled into, uh, you know, peripheral concerns just because just because of the way you have to create networks through hostile or difficult territories. 
just just one thing to emphasize this point is uh, it's a very interesting uh, fix I made recently uh, on the upcoming patch of the game. It's what I call the cotton situation. Uh, in the very first version of the game, um, I made I, I, I made a small mistake like putting a lot of cotton resources in Egypt and India. And then I checked my history record and I realized it was a mistake because the growing of cotton in this region was not the case in the 1850s. It happened because of the civil war. And so um, to, to emphasize the need for the U.S. to develop the cotton industry, we wanted to recreate the situation with the time that the U.S. had 99% monopoly of cotton in the world before the civil war and everybody was buying in the U.S. because it was more interesting of better quality and better quantities. And so the European economies, especially Britain, with its use in textile industry, depends completely on U.S. cotton. And when the war, so as long as the war has not occurred, the U.S. has interest to get this monopoly running and make a lot of money of selling cotton abroad. Uh, of course, when the war happened and the sources of cotton is blockaded by the northern forces, well, we have a set of events now that will start to pop up uh, cotton resources in Egypt and India, which happened actually, and where you finally end up in a situation where, where the British Empire switched its uh, sources of supplies completely from the U.S. to its own empire. And so this will be one more incentive, uh, let's say, for the U.S. to to take advantage of the southern assets early on and not spoil them in the in the hopes that it will weaken the South, because anyway, the South will make no benefit from its own cotton anyway, because it would be impossible for them to, to sell it if it's blockaded by the U.S. Navy. I think one of the one of the difficulties with this period is, by its very nature, the, the, this age of imperialism, this age of global empires, it means a lot of work for the player. And the emphasis on economics means a lot of details for the player. Uh, Victoria, Victoria too, uh, you know, for me personally, kind of gets submerged under detail, under the minutia of how trade is working. Uh, and then you have all the various categories of population to concern yourself with as well. Uh, Pride of Nations abstracts some of this, uh, but at, at the same time, it is still it is still a very large game. And I'm wondering how did you how, how did you try how did you go about mitigating the managerial uh, the, the managerial managerial difficulties for the player of controlling empires in this era. Well, I would say the um, empire, imperial management is uh, in some field very easy. For example, take the colonial empires. Well, you don't have much to do. You just build up your empires. There are a minimum number of uh, useful buildings that you need to have, and then you don't have to worry about that. It's, it's taken care of automatically by the engine, which pays maintenance, for example, and uh, all the things. Um, the trade is more or less uh, also working, I would say, kind of automatically. As long as you have the proper merchant fleet in the proper regions, uh, you check once in a while if your economy is doing fine, what goods you are lacking, set a few orders of, uh, of uh, balancing your economy, like I need more sales of this or more purchase of that. And uh, after a few clicks, things start to run more or less automatically. You have just to check, I would say, once in a while, see if the balance is fine, if nothing goes wrong. Clearly, at the moment, we, we, we would like to put more uh, tools at the disposal of players, and that's what we are working on for the next uh, patch of the game and the expansion of this. Uh, more information, more ways to delegate 
to the engine uh, and AI a few actions. Um, on the other hand, because the game is so long and there are so many turns, we don't want the player just to be uh, sitting in front of his computer and hitting end turn every, every five minutes. Uh, so we wanted to have some kind of balance. The truth is that um, the, um, the military aspects of the game are quite detailed. I mean, you are not always at war with your neighbors, but there are a lot of things to do in the colonies and in small expeditions and so on. So there will be always a lot of things to do. Um, I conquer that um, it's rather daunting task to do, to do this game. But um, what comes back from our beta team to um, the way they play is that usually they will spend, let's say, uh, maybe one third of the time in the first two turns of the game to, to set a different uh, parameters right. And then after that, they will concentrate on one or two special activities because they know things will be running in the, in the, in the background without too, many, too much concern. Because they would get warning if things go awry sometimes. So, Eric, uh, how, do, how do you think this, uh, this handles the challenge of, of the period? How, how, how streamlined is it? Um, I, I think in a way it, it makes things a little bit easier than Vicky 2 because it doesn't go quite as high with uh, your political options internally. Uh, and it doesn't do as much with the various demographics within your own nation. Um, and so it takes some things out of your way. So you're, you're less distracted. You have fewer things to focus on. So it, it does come down more to uh, a limited set of international options and trade options. Um, I was actually wondering, though. I, I played through, I think, all of the scenarios offered. Uh, may there be a scenario that's much more focused on trade or politics or expanding um, a specific area of... Uh, of the colonization, or is it is it going to be mostly a military theme for the scenarios? Uh, well, in fact, at, in the release version, we have um, we have one big campaign, which is the big one, uh, which handles every aspect of the game, and they, we have provided a few what we call battle scenarios, which focus on the military conflicts. So they usually don't have. Uh, economic rules and things like this. Um, what the plan is that we will have uh, coming very soon with the first uh, patch and some expansion, more scenarios uh, going in, in different fields. There will be more battle scenarios to offer more opportunities, like for example, one on the American Civil War or some other unknown conflicts. But we also, and I'm right now working on the, uh, uh, I would say, mid-game campaigns where your economy is already quite well developed and where the focus of the campaign is much more on colonial, let's say the famous scramble for Africa uh, period. And then we will have probably an end game grand campaign scenario starting in the start of the 20th century where well, the colonial empires are almost set, the economy is almost performant, and now you will have to focus on getting ready for the Great War. So the goal is that um, if the, the, the game continues to be successful, to, to provide the community with more scenarios, with more, let's say, goal-oriented uh, aspects. One on colonies, one on warfare, and of course the first one being more on the economy and railroad uh, development. Very cool, because I, I remember as I was thinking, I, uh, I played through the Boer War uh, campaign and I 
sort of figured my way through all the military aspects of, uh, of the game that way. And then I went over to uh, Japan and learned about all the, the sea transportation. And then I came back up to Sardinia Piedmont in, uh, in France, pushing into Austria. And I, I sort of started thinking, like, in all these games, the, the troops kind of populate themselves and the politics are pre-decided. Uh, and all that's sort of taken off the table. And I enjoyed how it was ramping up for me to learn more about uh, the various aspects of the game. Like politics do become, they're at least an option once you get to uh, Sardinia Piedmont and Resurgence. Um, but I was I was hoping that, and I'm glad to hear that there's going to be more of that, so that you can ramp your way up to actually doing the grand campaign as as Britain, um, because as Rob said, it is very much an intimidating thing. Well, and, and also, I mean, it's 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 one of my hobby horses. I will admit uh, that I am always I am always craving more intermediate scenario sizes because you know it's it's very possible that I you know I enjoy I enjoy the idea of the grand campaign. I don't want to play, you know, eighty years of history. Yeah, I understand that, and that's why we we are currently working on this middle uh, size campaigns. Because that's also the same reason, and people would like to to really complete a campaign of uh, much less scope and ambition. So we plan to have campaign of let's say maybe maximum twenty years or fifteen years of uh, of size and scope, which is already a good time of play, but which are manageable to finish, and with uh, these goals. Uh, I even plan, but I don't know, it's, you know, because making a scenario is not so easy for once. But the, the second thing is that before releasing to the players, we have to play it quite a few times before finding the right balance. And I was at some point uh, toying with the idea to make a, a, a scenario oriented on purely colonial matters, let's say. No economy, no warfare, just build up a colonial empire in some region. And that could be fun too, like... So players could get accustomed with the way to play the, the colonial decision in our game. Uh, there, there is a huge list of uh, potential scenarios here. It's just like within this list, the de development team has made some, uh, let's say, order of priority so that we can concentrate on testing and finishing a scenario before releasing it. Another cool thing we are going to do also to help players get into the game with probably less stress will be that um, within the, the coming patches for the game, we will regularly open new playing positions. In that sense, I would like to... Uh, I want to say that, uh, for example, in the first patch of the game, we will allow players to, to play Belgium and uh, um, the Ottoman Empire, which are not playable at start right now. But these nations are quite different in gameplay, either because they are smaller or because they are backward. And so they will allow players to still have some nice ex gameplay experience with probably much less, uh, let's say, pressure than playing one of the big guys. So there, there, there is so much in this game. It's such an interesting period. I, I would love to keep talking about it, and uh, I definitely, I definitely hope you'll come back on the show, uh, you know, before too long. There is definitely one thing I wanted to uh, get into before we, before we call it a night, uh, because it's. It's a novel idea. Uh, it's a it's a novel approach to diplomacy, and that is the crisis mechanics. Uh, yeah. I was wondering if you could get into wh what are what are crises, uh, and how are they resolved, and what's the logic behind that? Well, um, that's that's uh, that's a funny thing. That was a lot of discussion initially about that, and uh, 
we say we cannot script every event in the world history of 70 years of what happened here and there because it's more than likely that will never occur like it was, like the Fashoda incident between France and Britain or whatever happened. So we decided that we, we, we set a few set of rules saying, say, well, if such and such situation occur, that could create a crisis. Example of situation would be uh, a high level of colonial penetration from two great powers in the same area. So let's say guys conflicting for uh, the same grab of land, or that could be 60% uh, of Italian speaking guys in France. And so that would be a nationalistic conflict, or that could be too many Christian in the Muslim government and they would be revolting. And so it would be ethnical conflict and whatever. So we, we devised a set of potential causes. It could even be a stupid um, economic competition between merchants or uh, ships making uh, unfair trading against each other, whatever. There, there's a big set. So with a few random uh, things, a crisis can happen. Uh, and I know, for example, players have been noticing there are a lot of crises in the beginning of the game in Samoa, uh, which is a small island in the Pacific. And, uh, That's historically crisis correct, though, is it not? Yes, that was totally historically correct. The only mistake I made in this one was that the... Uh, well, it's not uh, a mistake of design, it's mostly a mistake of code, which is fixed, uh, which was the crisis was allowed to occur even with a very small amount of colonial penetration. So people were fighting where they had less than 1% interest in the area. So we, we, we raised up the, a bit the level of tensions uh, required for a crisis. Anyway, what happened is that when a situation of conflict like this occurred, and it can be anything, as I said, colonial, ethnical, commercial, uh, territorial, whatever. Then the crisis mechanism uh, starts. And um, I would say, to make it simple, the crisis uh, system is more or less like you were two guys sitting at a table playing a game of poker. There is a stake, uh, which is the cause of the crisis. And what you play for is uh, an amount of prestige points and sometimes some territorial advantage if the crisis is about, let's say, ownership of a region, for example. What you, you put on the table is prestige, and you wait what your opponent is going to, to, to stake also on the same crisis, and then you, you, you exchange rounds uh, through the, the different uh, game turns to, uh, to see what is going to happen. And the crisis um, will go like, like playing a game of poker. You will probably try to raise bait if it's important for you, or if you feel there is too much as risk, you can quit, or you can try to school things on. Uh, you can even invite people to, uh, to, 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 to act as referees between the two guys involved in conflict. Anyway, the idea is that um, at some point, you will have to decide whether you continue uh, raising the stake and gambling more and more and more, or if you just uh, call it quits. The only interesting thing is that is that it's like when you play poker, you never know what the, uh, the other guy is. And at some point, you may end up in a situation where um, it blows up in your face because uh, um, the, the risk for the other guy is too much and he cannot afford to lose what he has already bet. And he will push uh, the stakes very, very high up to the possible situation where you can get even a war. So it's a, it's a game. You have always to decide whether it's worth gambling more and putting more on the table or just saying, okay, it's over now, I've got, I've got enough points. Um, 
So th there's always a total uncertainty of how the crisis will end up. Uh, between the two nations of uh, controlled by AI, which the player are not involved, um, we have parameters that will probably uh, keep uh, some history of what happened in previous crisis. And for, if you take, for example, a nation which has been uh, humiliated in a previous crisis, which lost it, then the next time she's involved in a crisis, they, the AI will probably take in this into consideration and will probably be less real, more reluctant to, to call it quit before it's late. So they will try to, to avenge their honor and put the stakes even higher. And uh, typically that's what happened, for example, in the different crises that led to First World War. It was Russia humiliation in the, in the previous crisis in the Balkans who pushed them to, to fight forever uh, alongside the Serbs and led to the First World War. So we, we have a similar mechanic in the game. Um, and to be fair, there is a certain part of randomness in that, because uh, we also want the player uh, to be unable to predict everything. Yeah, and, and one of the things I, I enjoy about the mechanic is that so often in strategy games, diplomacy really only revolves around who your friends and enemies are going to be. Uh, perhaps some you know, trade agreements are thrown in there, but by and large, it's a, it's a question of alliance politics. But again, in, in keeping with, that, with the sort of, uh, again, for lack of a better word, cynical point of view of, of Pride of Nations, often these crises, there is really nothing at stake here beyond honor. And yet, because prestige is the entire point of the game, there is this incentive to push things well past the point of being reasonable because the prestige reward is so tempting. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's something we, we, uh, we wanted to, to have, is to, to, to get this feeling that uh, nothing is for certain. Like, even if you build up a relationship with another country, one of your neighbors, because you wish it like that way, Sometimes unexpected crises will just spoil the whole thing, uh, and we have dozens of historical experience uh, examples of this at where the relation were quite good. Let's say, take the best example is Britain and France. Uh, by the end of the 19th century, they were doing their best to get along together, and the stupid incident between 20 French uh, skirmishers in Sudan and the, and the British forces almost end up nearly at the, they were at the verge of war. And the French back down at the last minute, but it could have been the first world war between France and England, uh, which was not at all the let's say the diplomatic trend that the two nations has tried to build up in the last in the previous twenty years, where they were more cooperative than enemies. So we wanted that uh, things like this could come and just well force you to be like the rulers at the time. Well, guys, I have a I have a problem here, and I have to react. And something that you cannot get prepared for. So that's true. The game is probably a bit disturbing for players who like to to scheme things years and centuries in advance and uh, have great plans, a strategic uh, uh, organization. Everything can get screwed by a, a little detail. And that's what happened also in history, uh, more often than not. All right. So as, as we wrap up here... Um you know, I, I have not played as much of the game as I would like. I'm probably going to be reviewing it for PC Gamer, and so I'll be spending much more time with it in the near future. 
but my my first reaction is is very positive. I I like a lot of the things that are that are going on in this game. Uh, my my biggest complaint actually right now is uh, computer performance. Uh, I find map scrolling is insanely slow. Uh, it is it, it you know if I if I don't just click on the section of the map I want to visit, uh, you know trying to scroll the map is a is a very painful way of trying to sur- survey the land. Uh, that's it's it and then turns also uh, take quite a bit of time. Uh, I, I wonder this is this is a new level of challenge for for the age engine. Uh, is this is this the is this the engine showing its limitations a bit? Yes, part of. I mean, the game was not conceived uh, for things that ambitious, and so we have been faced with uh, a limitation. One of them being the, the sheer size of the map, which is so huge. Uh, usually we found that uh, scrolling is improved when you, you zoom in and not out because there are less displays, of course. Uh, anyway, our, um, our lead developer is doing a lot of things to improve uh, computer performance, and uh, you will see probably a lot of changes already with the first patch, which is uh, very soon incoming now. Um, uh, this true that our engine was initially designed for, you know, smaller maps, smaller operations, and also a limited field of action, which was mostly um, a military field. Now, uh, Pride of Nation has everything, diplomacy, economies, uh, a lot of things. And so all these things, because we don't want computer and the AI to be uh, uh, too dumb, well, of course, requires calculation. So the, the processing time between turns for the AI is, of course, in proportion of the scope of the game. So we are now working, and it's a daunting task, um, to, to change uh, some of the aspects of the game, uh, let's say, treatment of the uh, analytic process and the AI process is done, and to have it more uh, during turns and in between turns. Uh, but it's not as simple as it looks. It takes time to, to rethink a lot of mechanism and processes. But it's on, on the way. But it's true that we probably... Have reached the limit that uh, what we could decently do, and we will probably to adapt our engine to something more uh, performant. Uh, but uh, also, once again, uh, there are some strange things. I'm not at all a computer dev, so I'm not a big knowledge like that. I'm more, I would say, a scenario producer guy. And um, I've noticed something strange, like in my very old computer using XP in the office. It's much more performant than in my uh, last uh, state-of-the-art laptop using Win 7. So there are mysteries that are, you know, very strange for me. Uh, so as, as we wrap this up here, uh, Eric, any, any closing thoughts? What's, what's been your, you know, what's, what's your early read on this game? Early read? Um, it, it shows that it's um, built on an engine that has been historically used more as a military engine. Uh, I think that's where it really shines. Um, but I also really like things like uh, the crises and how that works as opposed to a purely scripted historical model or a scripted with some randomness to it historical model. Yeah, I, I find that the, the, my initial reaction is very much this is kind of how I want to play with the 19th century where, I mean, my, my problem with Victoria was always I, I felt I was dealing with decisions that were perhaps... Uh, below my level of command, the things that I just shouldn't be meddling with, like the the amount of attention I have to pay to the economy. Uh, here, I, I, I like the simplicity of, 
just being a ruthless imperialist and you know grabbing grabbing power influence wherever possible and even if it doesn't always make sense because I, I I love it even more when games kind of give me incentives for doing things that might not be might not be wise in the long run uh, but Anyway, so that's that's Pride of Nations. Uh, it, it just came out. I, I think you can buy it now on Gamers Gate finally, uh, and it's just twenty dollars. Uh, it's so far a very interesting game and really gets at the uh, the delicious joys of ruthless imperialism. <laughs> uh, any closing thoughts, gentlemen? Uh, okay, I'll, uh, just thing I would say is that uh, my objective when I started to 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 think about making a computer game from my original board game and that was shared by my uh, colleague when we developed that was we wanted really players to 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 feel the experience of like traveling in time uh in some ways it was like okay you're a good uh, good neighbor good friend of he wells and let's go back a few hundred fifty years back in the past and have fun and behave like a, a victorian gentleman and what you call a ruthless imperialist. It was the same guys in the end. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we are pleased that if players can feel that and enjoy doing that, well, uh, our goal will be accomplished. The only thing we want players to know is that the team is working uh, a lot on the, on, the, on the game to bring more and more and more. We have dozens of ideas that uh, have not found the time to be truly tested and implemented, but for sure they will come. And that was one of the reasons why we, uh, at Paradox, wanted uh, an attractive price on the game, is that we knew that it was already a lot of things inside the game, but more will be coming. And so we felt it would be nice that uh, the uh, monsters of the efforts that uh, all the big team is uh, putting in this product would be given as an opportunity for players to buy expansion project in the, in the coming months, provided, of course, that we have a successful, uh, let's say, sales on the game, which looks to be the case right now. Well, I, 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 cer I certainly hope so. It's, 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 it's interesting, and I, I love the trend of pricing war games at an approach at, at an approachable price point. Eric, what about you? Any last, any last words? Oh, I had some. <laughs> now I'm thinking about ex expensive war games. Um, <laughs> no, I, I do like. Um, I like the game. I like. I hope it does sell well. Um, and for to its credit, I think it's it's good that it took some of the things off the table that Vicky Two has, because I think Vicky Two, uh, intentionally or no, sort of ends up making the uh, claim that there are a lot of things you shouldn't be messing with in terms of politics and economy uh, in this period of history, um, but it lets you mess with them anyway, and it, that's a fun learning experience. But it's. Uh, it's also just another dial or another you know page in your ledger that you need to handle or pay attention to, even if you're mostly not touching it. So kudos for taking that off the table and letting me get through things a little more quickly. Yeah, yeah, Philip, I, I would encourage you to the next time you see Chris King, just to let him know who the real master of the Victorian period is. Okay, uh -oh. I, I will I will let him know next Sunday because we are flying to Sweden uh, in a week time to to discuss about the game launch and the future. Perfect. <laughs> I, I will be glad to to tell our Scottish friend uh, what you think about him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, excellent. And on that combative note, uh, we'll wrap up our show. Thanks so much to you both for uh, joining us, and especially to you, Philip. I know it's I know it's very late on Sunday. 
yeah, uh, okay. over there. I'm not like a chicken. I'm not going to, to bed right now, but very soon anyway. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure to speak to you. It absolutely you. was. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.